So this morning we're in Mark 15, um, the crucifixion. And um, what I want to do is I want to I want to start off by reading the chapter. And um, I really just want you guys, Mandy will put it up on the screen. Um, but I really want you guys just to track along um, as we read it. Because I just felt that for some of us the Spirit's just going to speak, speak to us even as I begin to read the passage. The Bible says the Word of God is living and active. It's sharper than a two-edged sword. So it's not just words on a page, but it's actually the Word of God and the Spirit breathes upon it. So Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and breathe upon your Word this morning and speak to our hearts. I pray that you would do... I just had a, a, a picture of a, of a heart surgeon who goes in so gently but does incredibly powerful work. And I feel like that's what the Lord is going to do in our hearts this morning by Spirit. So we say, come Holy Spirit and come and change our hearts. Move our hearts in Jesus' name. And we all said, Mark 15, I'm reading in the ESV. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and they delivered him to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was amazed. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. And the crowd came up and they began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him Release for them Barabbas instead. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? And they cried out again, Crucify him. And Pilate said to them, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, hail king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with the reed and spitting on on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, meaning place of a skull. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. They divided his garments among them, casting lots for them, to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews... And with, that, with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would have destroyed the temple and rebuilt it in three days, 
save yourself and come down from the cross. So all the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved himself. He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, He's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come down to take him. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene and Mary the son of James the younger and of Joseph and of Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. What a powerful story. I know it was a long one, but I just felt like we should just read from start to finish. We sometimes become so familiar with just the horror of this chapter. And um, I, just, I just felt like yeah, God just wanted to do something significant in our hearts. And um, one of the things I felt was the Lord just wanting to ask us as we... As we track through the story together, just like the Spirit saying, like, where do you see yourself in the story? Because there's a whole lot of people at play. And I just felt like God wanted to give us fresh eyes again into the reality of the story. And it starts in, in verse 1 and it says, And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders of the scribe and the whole council. And I find it fascinating that it starts this, this day of days, this day of judgments, of crucifixion starts with that phrase and as soon as it was morning and readers of mark will actually recall what mark had written about things that happened early in the morning because in the very first chapter of mark it says in mark 135 and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark jesus departed went out to a desolate place and there he prayed and it's interesting this morning in this day he was rising very early in the morning and he was also going to a desolate place, but this time not to pray. And I found it so interesting that at the same time in the morning where the father would invite Jesus into a place of intimacy, 
the religious spirits invited this council of scribes and Pharisees into a place of devising the downfall and the death of Jesus. It says there were high priests and the whole council, chief priests. And you know, the whole system of priests had been set up so that a priest was someone who would go before God to represent his people so that they could be and have access to God. And here they were, these chief priests who were meant to draw people into the presence of God, were literally drawing God into the presence of death in this moment. How crazy had the whole system that God had set up been warped and changed so that the very people God had set up to bring people into the presence of God, God's presence was in their midst and they didn't recognize Him. Jesus said, you search the scriptures to know about me, but when I was in your very midst, you missed me. And for some of us, God can be moving in our midst and we can miss him right in front of our eyes. And then it says in, in, in the, verse, the second part of verse 1, it says, They bound Jesus and they led him away and delivered him to Pilate. And I, again, I find it so fascinating that Mark chooses to use those, to actually mention they bound him. Because if you read Mark, you'll read another incident early in the book where it says someone was bound. This is what it says, um, Mark six seventeen. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John the Baptist and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother's wife. So earlier on, John the Baptist had been bound. Jesus now is being bound. First, it was John the Baptist being bound by the religious, uh, I mean the political spirit, Herod. Now it's Jesus being bound by the religious spirit. But there was another occasion that Mark writes about with someone being bound. In fact, it's the chapter before John the Baptist and it says, Mark 5, it says, When Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart. Isn't it interesting that Jesus, the one who came to set people free from bondage, from being bound, was now being bound himself. Isaiah 61 verse 1, it says, You came, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, for the Lord has anointed me, to set free the captives, to bind up, to heal the brokenhearted. Every bondage that Jesus met in his life, he set people free. Yet on this day, he was the one taking the bondage upon himself. And he took the bondage upon himself so that every person that would come after the crucifixion could be set free from any bondage that they would find themselves in their life. And then it says... They delivered him over to Pilate. And when we were praying the Lord's Prayer, I was so struck where we say, deliver us from evil. Or actually deliver us from the evil one. And you know, Jesus' ministry came to bring people deliverance, to bring people freedom. But in this moment, he himself is being delivered up. And we say, Deliver us from the evil one. And Jesus says, the way that I deliver you from the evil one is I deliver myself up in your place. Is it making sense? And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so. 
In fact, the, the actual direct translation for that, when he asked them, are you the king of the Jews, actually says, you say. It's so interesting that um, here is Jesus, so fully secure in his identity as a son, so fully secure in his destiny and what God had purposed him to do. When someone actually said to him, defend yourself, tell us who you are, he didn't even feel the need to actually say, this is who I am. He so knew the father's voice over his life that had been speaking to him since his baptism. That when he was in the place where it was life or death, he didn't even open his mouth to defend himself. You know, it says when Jesus was baptized, it said, God tore open, he ripped open the heavens. And a voice came down and said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. And you know that those heavens were never stitched back together. So since that day, the voice of the father over Jesus was saying, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. So when he stood before Pilate and Pilate said, are you the king of the Jews? The voice of the father in him kept affirming him. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. He was so humble. And there's something that Jesus does here that we have to recognize that the crucifixion doesn't just break the power of sin of my own life as an individual, but it actually breaks the systemic power of sin. That's come to corrupt the world. So what was happening here was there was this whole system going on. The chief priests and the scribes and the Pharisees, they're all looking after their own agendas. Pilate is put in place by Rome. He's looking after his own agenda because he knows if he upsets the balance and releases Jesus, it's going to be his head on the block and his career is over. So everyone in this whole story is self-serving their agenda. And here comes Jesus, the only one who can actually say, I'm innocent in this whole story. I have pure motives. And he sees no need to defend himself. So when Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? What he does is he actually says, this is what my kingship looks like. It looks like humility. The true kingdom of God is not self-serving serving agenda. The true kingdom of God is humility that goes below the self-serving agenda of the systems of this world and it flips it on its head and it says, actually, this is the kingdom which Isaiah spoke of, said it will in- of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. When God plants a seed of peace and humility, whatever the world does, whatever the religious systems do, whatever the political systems do to try and overthrow it, that seed will grow and grow and grow. And humility will always come and eventually overturn the tables of power and oppression. That is the kingdom of God coming. Yeah. In, a com- in this complete mockery and travesty of justice, he doesn't even place on the record a statement as to who he is. Jesus is being enthroned as the king whose very kingdom is marked and defined by humility. A king who doesn't need to proclaim his kingship. I mean, we can just look around what's happening in the world. Anyone with any level of like, political powers, like, they have to proclaim, this is who I am. And Jesus says, no, there's a kingdom that is going to come and overthrow every other kingdom. And it's going to be marked by a king who doesn't have to blow his own trumpets because his life speaks of what his kingship is about. 
Amen. And Pilate asked him again, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answers, so that Pilate was amazed. He remained silent to every one of his own accusations in order to silence every accusation you will ever face. The enemy is called the accuser. If you hear someone speaking in a voice of accusation, it's an echo of the voice of the enemy. And, and Pilate says to him, can you not see how many charges they bring against you? Have you no answer to make? And Jesus' word over your life and my life says, when the enemy brings charges against you, have you no answer to make? And Jesus says, I'm silent. I don't need to justify and silence my own accusations. He was losing the battle of his own accusation to set up the victory over every accusation, past, present and future that will come over your life. So when the enemy comes and says, see how many charges they bring against you. See what you've done in your life. See, you've got a track record of messing up. You've got a track record of being unfaithful. Have you no answer to make? Jesus says, I've already answered. I've already answered. And then it carries on in verse 6. It says, now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. And among the rebels in prison who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man named Barabbas. Isn't it interesting? It says at the feast, Pilate used to release one prisoner once a year. It's like, wow, the political system really can bring a lot of freedom. We'll just release one prisoner once a year. But there's an amazing thing that happens in this whole transaction where Barabbas is released and Jesus is taken in. Jesus is actually saying what this political system is unable to do, I will do. I will swap myself for that prisoner so that every prisoner, anyone who ever finds themselves in prison or in bondage from this day onward will be set free if they come to me. Among the rebels in the prison, there was a, na- a man named Barabbas. Barabbas, actually, the, in, 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 in the language of the time, Bar means son of. And Abbas would be father. So there was a man named son of the father. Mm. Literally, that's the direct translation. So the true son of the true father is put in the place of a man whose name is the son of the father. That every son of every father who would come after this would be set free if they came to the true son who humbled himself to the will of the true father. And for us, many of us, we can be like Barabbas. We can be a rebel in a prison. We can find ourselves imprisoned in life, in circumstances, in the things we do. Rebelling against the call of God on our life. But the beauty of the story is that just like Barabbas, it doesn't say this, but just like Barabbas, he comes in your rebellion and he finds you and he pulls you out. And he says, you were created and born for something greater than this. I'm going to take you out of your rebellion. I'm going to take you out of your prison. I'm going to set you free. 
And then there's this whole interaction between the crowd and Pilate. And he keeps saying to them that he's innocent. And they just keep saying, it's so interesting. He says, what shall we do? And they just say, crucify him. And then he says, but what evil has he done? Crucify him. Isn't that like the, the, the voice of the enemy? You try and like, you try and like barter in your mind with like, oh, maybe I can just like justify myself. And the enemy just comes says like, the enemy comes to kill, to steal and destroy. That's the only modus operandi he knows. And it's like, they couldn't even argue. He couldn't even argue with the crowd. They just said like, kill him, kill him, kill him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Scourging, he doesn't talk about it in Mark, but that's where they whipped him with the cat of nine tails. Up to 39 times. And they could actually kill a man just by scourging him. Which is what Isaiah says in chapter 53. I'll just read it to you quickly. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs. Surely he has carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his stripes we are healed. And I just feel like there's a, there's a reminder of the stripes of Jesus that released the healing. The blood that flowed from his back. He says, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. It's the same yoke that he places upon us. He's there yoked to this death. I hope this is helping you guys. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace and they called together the whole battalion. I didn't know this, but a battalion in, those, in, in that setup was 600 soldiers. And isn't it amazing? It says, they led him inside the palace. The true king of all was led inside a palace. It's almost like the enemy sets it up just to mock Jesus just a little bit more. The one who forsook his throne in, in heaven, gave up his glory, was now being paraded through this earthly palace as a direct and deliberate mockery from the enemy to taunt him, saying, this is how far you are from being a king. It's almost like they were saying, look, you're in a palace. You call yourself a king. Yet at the same time, the whole time, Jesus just knows this heavenly kingship that he's bringing about is going to turn everything on its head. And they clothed him in a purple cloak and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. I didn't know this, but I was listening to a guy called Dr. Craig Keener, who's one of the foremost New Testament scholars in the world. And he says those purple cloaks were really, really expensive. And what they used to do, um, it's a bit of like biblical nerddom here, but they used to find, there was a mollusk, apparently, that they used to find and they would crush it. And they'd have to crush hundreds or thousands of these because the guts of the mollusk were, were purple. And they would use it to dye these robes. And um, 
I just found it so interesting, having read that portion in Isaiah where it says, he was crushed for iniquities. He was literally wearing a robe that was colored in these crushed, um, like the crushed guts of these, of these mollusks would, would stain this, this robe purple. And it's like every element, every layer of the story is just talking about how he is just crushed. And they put the crown of thorns on his head. And we know that in Genesis chapter 3, when, the, when Adam and Eve fell, it says, The curse will be the ground, you will have thorns. And it's like Jesus saying, I will, I will take a crown and I'll take the very curse that you've lived with and I'll place it upon my head because I'm not ashamed to take your curse as my crown so that one day you can bow before me and lay your crown before me as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And they began to salute him and said, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head and spitting on him and kneeling in homage to him. And when they mocked him, they stripped him of the cloak and put his own clothes on him. And I find it fascinating that they, they strip him of this cloak. and they, It's like G, Jesus was just being stripped one layer after the next layer. Physically, emotionally, he was being stripped. But you know, it says that he emptied himself of his glory when he came as a man. That Jesus' whole life and his whole posture towards us was like, I will empty myself. I will humble myself. So when they strip these things away from me, it's not new to me because I'm used to giving up everything I am for you. And they led him out to crucify him. And there's, there's the whole story of Simon of Cyrene. I, I don't have time to go into that. But it says they crucified him and they divided his garments among them, casting lots for them. They literally took what he, his very, the very last item of clothing that he had and they removed it in complete shame. Isn't it amazing that even his garments were speaking, it says they, they were casting lots. It's like even in like his most impoverished state, even like his rags were being used to, to create some kind of abundance, some kind of provision. Some, it, it, it's like a strange setup there, but Jesus, like, even when he's stripped, there's still life. It's, it's, just, it's just incredible. And you know, he's there and he's naked, completely ashamed. And we read as it goes on, they just mock him. They say, um, they say um, you who would destroy the temple, you'll rebuild it. Save yourself. Come down from the cross. Let us see. Come on, save yourself. And Jesus is there and he's completely naked and he's completely ashamed. But he's doing something powerful that he's not only breaking the power of sin, but he's breaking the power of shame. Because we read in Hebrews it says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. Turning upside down the shame of the cross. And you know what, how, why, why it's so powerful? Because the very last verse we read about Adam and Eve before they fell in Genesis 2, the last verse of Genesis 2, it says, The man and woman, man and woman were naked and unashamed. That is the state that He created us to live in. Completely vulnerable, completely unashamed. And Jesus comes in completely naked, completely ashamed. He is in the place of 
utter shame, utter disgust, but completely naked. And you know something that we learned recently um, over the years about shame? The only thing that breaks the power of shame is vulnerability. So there's Jesus, completely vulnerable, completely shamed. And in that moment, he says, there is no shame that anyone can face that I'm not being exposed to right now and showing that I'm not afraid to be naked and I'm not afraid to be vulnerable. And in that moment, he breaks the power of shame. And he says, you come to me. I was naked and ashamed and I will let you leave being naked and unashamed. He embodies the ultimate vulnerability and the ultimate shame. You know, Adam and Eve took from a tree to try and make up a deficit in their life. The enemy said, if you go and eat from that tree, you'll be like God. They were in the place of complete abundance. They had no need. Everything was there. But they felt like there was something that God was holding out they had a scarcity mindset. Here is Jesus, completely stripped, completely impoverished, no abundance, but he gives himself on a tree. And he says, I break that scarcity mindset. I break the sense of shame. Shame comes from scarcity, and shame always leads to hiding. Adam and Eve, what did they do? When they sinned, they hid themselves. Jesus says, there's no need to hide yourself because I'm not hiding myself. So he calls us out of hiding. And he says, I've got nothing to hide as you gaze on my horror. I won't look away from the most horrific part of your life. When he looks at the thing that disgusts you or the thing that weighs on you, the thing that you think, if someone knew this about me, he says, I've seen that. I know it, and I count not your sins against you. 2 Corinthians 5, I think it's 19. God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, not counting their sins against them. If you've ever heard that it's about God making a list of your sins so he can erase it, it's no, it's God coming in Jesus, saying, I'm reconciling, I'm bringing everything back into its proper order, and I'm not counting your sins against you so why are you counting your sins against yourself and then in in the ninth hour it says he cried in a loud voice my god my god why have you forsaken me and it's amazing he only speaks twice in this passage when Pilate asks him he says you say and the only other thing john records other um words that he says on the cross but mark only records this verse which is the beginning of psalm 22 isn't it amazing jesus is in the worst moments of his life i think i would have some choice words to say and he the first thing that comes out of his mouth is scripture and psalm 22 he says my god my god why have you forsaken me and you know that psalm 22 ends with a beautiful verse I'll actually read this to you. Because I think sometimes what Jesus said has been misinterpreted. Psalm 22, verse 24. So it starts off saying, God, why have you forsaken me? And it ends saying, 
for he is not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard him when he cried. And Jesus would have known that. And he said, God would have heard me when I cried. And you know, the truth of the cross is that the ultimate abandonment Jesus takes upon himself. And he says, every place where we feel abandoned, I see you there and I meet you there. And I raise you the power of the cross. Where I was abandoned, but in fact, God was in me reconciling the world to himself. And I'll end with this. It says, when the, it says, when the, sorry, the, verse 38, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man is the son of God. When he died, it says that, that, that curtain in the temple, you know, that curtain was 60 foot tall. And they said up to like four inches wide and it ripped from top to bottom. And it's the same word used when it says, the father tore open the heavens and said, this is my son whom I love. He tore the temple. It was like a picture of the spirit of God, like gushing, ushering out of the temple. And it just came out with such force that it ripped the curtain from top to bottom. It said, no longer will man be separated by a temple where they can't, where he can't come into my presence. No, my presence is going out from the temple and it's going to reside in man and woman. And it's a reconciliation of Adam and Eve who, when they sinned, they withdrew from God. And now God says, no, I take your sin upon me and I no longer withdraw from you. I, I move towards you. And that's the message of the gospel. That when we are in hiding, he comes and he says, where are you? Because I've seen your sin and I've seen your shame. And I love you no matter what. And isn't it interesting that the first person who recognizes that this man was truly the son of God was a centurion. The very enemy of Jesus standing there, the executor, where the gospel comes in and says, I will make of my enemies friends. And it turns the world system on its head. And it says, whatever you throw at me, I will absorb with love and I will pour out mercy and grace upon you. So today there's fresh grace. There's fresh healing. And I just, we can close our eyes as we finish. I had a picture of God just reaching into our hearts. And where we could be like Pilate or we could be like we could be like the crowd or we could be like the high priest where we have anger and angst and anxiety and frustration and hatred and unforgiveness and shame in our hearts. And it's the Father pulling, putting His hand in, into us and pulling it out and saying, I no longer count your sins against you, but I offer myself as the ultimate sacrifice to bring you, who was once an enemy, into a place of friendship and reconciliation. Won't you stand? I know it's just on 11. We'll finish now. But I, I don't want to leave this moment without an opportunity for us to allow the surgeon to come and bring his healing into our hearts.
we just say, thank you, Holy Spirit, for this moment. And there was a verse that struck me earlier where the crowd says to, where the crowd is bartering with Pilate and he says, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And obviously they didn't. But I I just felt like there was the voice of the Father. Do you want me to release you? And his answer is always yes. His answer is always yes. When you come to him and say, Father, I need you. Do you want me to release you of of this sin, of this pain, of this anger, of this oppression? His answer is always yes. So wherever you are in your life today, it's like we're having this moment where it says, the centurion stood facing him. And I felt like we're in this moment where it's like, it's you and it's him. And you're facing him and he's looking at you with a piercing gaze of love and affection. And he says, I've not held anything from you. Would you allow me to reach into you and free you from whatever bondage you're in? And if, if, if that for you is you've never actually met and encountered Jesus, you've never actually looked into his eyes and received his forgiveness, then today... He's saying, receive my love. So Father, we come to you and we say, we bring you all our sin. We bring you all our shame. We bring you all our hiddenness. And we say, we don't, we don't stay in hiding anymore. like the Spirit is just for some of us releasing shame from our lives. Things that have plagued our hearts, our minds. It's just like I see the Spirit just hovering over us. Healing. Healing. Kindness. It's the kindness of God that leads us to a place of being free in our minds. Repenting. Changing the way we think about Him. So, I'm going to ask James to lead us in just one verse of a song to finish. But when you just place your hand on your heart, we just say, we love you, Jesus. We love you. We love you. We love you. I pray, Father, that if there's anyone here holding on to unforgiveness, they would see into your eyes. For some of us, we just need to allow the forgiveness of God to wash over our hearts. Where we've been holding things against ourselves that He says, I don't hold them. I don't count those things against you.
We're going to sing, and if you need to go while we sing, that's fine. We're going to just ask James to lead us in one verse. I'm going to be up at the front. I'd love to pray for anyone who would like to be, if, you, if you'd like to give your heart to Jesus, if you'd like to receive fresh forgiveness, or there's some, just some things that I mentioned when we spoke. I feel like the Lord is, is an opportunity here for us to respond to the deep work He wants to do in our hearts. So we're going to create a space up front for you to do that. Feel free. Let's sing together and then we're going to close. Amen. Mm-hmm.